I think our younger children can be dismissed at this time for Children's Church. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. It says, Pleading for the Lost on it. Having finished the Gospel of John and not yet started 1 John, we have uh, several weeks of sort of picking up some odds and ends, things we've wanted to get to, and uh, this is one of them. We're in Numbers, the book of Numbers, early in the Bible, chapter 21. You can turn to that in your Bibles or look along in the sermon outline. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We ask that it may work in our lives deeply this morning. We pray that you would be with us so when we leave this place, we will know that we have spent time with you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This is sort of an odd sermon this morning in that I've already preached it once. And uh, in January of 2006, this was the first sermon I preached after I came off my sabbatical when I was writing my dissertation. And apparently a lot of people weren't all that excited about me coming back to the pulpit then since uh, they didn't show up that day. And since then, several people have asked me to preach this sermon again because they missed it the first time. There may have been some sleepiness involved, I'm not sure. Additionally, we're going to switch in a few weeks uh, our adult Sunday school class to study these books in the Old Testament that deal with the wandering of Israel in the wilderness. So I thought this would be a good bridge to that. And so with all that out of the way, here goes. This morning... I'm going to talk about snakes. I'm going to start with a quick survey. How many people here really, really like snakes? Raise your hand. Okay. One entire family. Pray for them. Um, And a, a couple others here and there. Okay. How many people here really, really hate snakes? Oh, yeah. You're on the winning side. Very good. The, uh, well, actually, you're in very good company in the second group 
Because before 9-11 happened, snakes rated as the one thing that Americans feared the most. Now that sounds sort of quaint today. Only a few years ago, the thing that Americans were most afraid of were not exploding airplanes or biochemical weapons or terrorists blowing up buses or war in the Middle East. Not even the collapse of their 401k plans or falling property values made the list. But sitting on the top of the list of greatest fears were ordinary, old-fashioned snakes. In a 1999 Harris poll, mere nine years ago, 36% of all Americans identified snakes as their worst fear, worse than heights, worse than spiders, worse than speaking in public. The number one fear in America is ophidophobia. Ophidophobia. Remember that for the next time you're on Jeopardy. Ophidiophobia. And in the survey, there were gender differences. 49% of all women polled said they were scared to death of snakes, while 22% of men said the same. And whether you write it off to Eve or Freud, I don't care, I'm in the 22%. I hate snakes. As far as I'm concerned, snakes are snakes, and presumptive strikes aren't even debatable. You see a snake, you reach for a garden hoe. It's just that simple. I remember once many years ago, when the kids were little, we were living in Alabama, a state well known for its snakes. And I was leaving for work one day, and I opened the door, and there at the bottom of the steps was a six-foot-long black snake. And I think I might have screamed or yelled or hollered or done something loud. And I jumped back inside and slammed the door all of which which got both of the girls, who were very much younger then, to start their high-pitched screaming, which was an activity they particularly enjoyed at the time. Woke up Samuel, who was just a baby then, who started crying. David might have perhaps looked up from his book. And Daniel, completely oblivious to what was going on, not thinking that the girl's high-pitched screaming was anything out of the ordinary, continued to jump up and down on the couch. <laughs> All of which earned me the most curious looks from Joanne. So I, being stout of heart, went out the back door to the tool shed and got the garden hoe. And I went around to the carport where the snake was and approached it cautiously from the rear garden hoe at the ready. And then that snake did, you know, that sort of curl up and look at you thing, which is so endearing. (laughs) And it started to hiss. And I was pretty much ready to drop the garden hoe and just call it a draw, you know. But there were a whole bunch of eyes watching me out the window, forcing me to uphold my lofty stature as a defender of women and children. And so on about the third try, I hooked the snake with the garden hoe and flicked it into the neighbor's bushes. (laughs) The neighbor is an elderly man who is a lifelong hunter and, to my way of thinking, clearly suffering from dementia. And he started looking in the bushes to find the snake. He's in the bushes, kind of moving on the side, and the snake, alas, had managed to escape obviously much more afraid of the old hunter than the young preacher. 
People and snakes don't get along. We never have. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Some scientists think we've developed some sort of snake-hating gene that makes us enemies. And I don't know about that because children are usually curious about snakes. That is, until their parents teach them to scream. But whatever this thing is between people and snakes, it's been going on for a really, really long time. And take this morning's passage about fiery serpents from the book of Numbers. It's an old story, happened a long time ago. In fact, there's lots of snake stories from antiquity. There's a Sumerian legend about the god of healing who walked around with two snakes on a staff long before anyone heard of the American Medical Association. Snakes show up in the ancient history of India, China, Africa, the Americas, the Middle East, and Europe, which is pretty much the whole world. Half the time, they're depicted as saviors or guardians. And the other half of the time, they're depicted as demons or represent evil. And we just don't know what to do with creatures that bring out such a wide range of feelings. I mean, it's, it's sort of hard not to admire a creature that can travel six miles an hour without feet or can climb trees without hands. And that whole skin-shedding feature is kind of fascinating, especially for those of us carrying around a lot of dead cells of our own and wouldn't mind some new skin. However, it's a lot harder not to fear a creature that can fell the strongest man with just one bite even if you didn't mean to step on it, and even if you apologize every which way you can while you're waiting for the venom to reach your heart. And snakes have teeth, big pointed teeth, and they live underground in the dark, and plenty of them only come out at night, which makes them really powerful symbols. I mean, take a snake dream to a psychotherapist and stand back. I mean, you're going to discover way more about your depth than you ever wanted to know. You know, all in all, most of us prefer safer, softer creatures, like bunnies. I mean, outside of Monty Python, bunnies don't show up in darker, dangerous (laughs) stories. Oh, way too many people have seen that. I mean, they're just not complicated. They're not dangerous enough to capture the imagination. There is no bunnies in the Bible. I checked. But there are snakes. And they make a big-time appearance here in Numbers 21. The Israelites are wandering around the desert, and they've been through a lot prior to this little episode. So let's look at the background of where they've been so far. Where have they been? When did this take place? It took place... When God had delivered Israel from the bondage of Pharaoh, Moses led the new nation out of Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, and God gave Moses the law, which was to govern the nation of Israel. But they had a little problem while they were there. Because Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God, and he comes down prepared to tell the people how they're supposed to relate to God, And when he gets there, he discovers they're having a worship service of their own. They went ahead. They ordered a golden calf from Amazon.com. They're having a wonderful time. And Moses got mad. He said, this isn't true worship. God wouldn't be pleased. However, Aaron replied, and I'm paraphrasing, hey, it's meeting the felt needs of people, and they're having a wonderful time, and besides, you can't argue with numbers, can you? 
But in fact, God wasn't pleased. Moses prayed, killed off several thousand idolatrous Israelites, and then offered his own life in exchange for the rest of the nation. But instead, God told Moses to lead the people to the promised land, which he did. He arrived there, sent in 12 spies to check the place out. Ten of the spies returned, frightened by the Canaanites, said, oh, they're giants, so there's no way we can uh, defeat them, and stirred up the Israelites, and they grumbled against Moses and started picking up stones to throw at him. Anytime you see the word grumbling or murmuring or complaining, it's a bad sign in the Bible. We don't ever use that word in a good way. So when you see that word, our red flags ought to be going off. Something bad's about to happen. And they grumbled against Moses. And God's not pleased by this. So he intervenes, he saves Moses, and then Moses again prayed for the people that God would forgive him and turn away his wrath. And God didn't kill him then, but he wouldn't allow that generation to enter the promised land. So God tells Moses, now we're up to Numbers 14. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. So they headed back out to the desert for 40 years. And during that time, Moses had literally watched thousands die in the desert. And toward the end of that tragic time, Moses is directing the people back towards Canaan. And on the way, he defeated the Canaanite king of Arad. So the Israelites were anxious to continue north into Canaan. But they run into another problem. And we now have gotten to Numbers 21. Let's look at this strange story about snakes. We're going to start at verse 4, and we're going to see wandering. Wandering, verse 4. From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Our text starts by saying that the Israelites traveled from Mount Or along the Red Sea and then headed south of Edom. The area south of Edom is a dry, rocky, barren wasteland. It's not a vacation destination. Israel's been wandering in the desert for 40 years. Almost all of those who came out of Egypt with Moses and Aaron are now dead. This is an entirely new generation. And Israel is on the verge of entering the promised land in between the people of Israel and Canaan are their brothers, the Edomites. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau, whereas the Israelites were the descendants of Jacob. So Moses sends messengers ahead to the king of Edom. And we see in Numbers 20. It says, Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we've passed through your territory. There's a major highway that goes up the coast from Egypt all the way up to Turkey. It's called the King's Highway. And it's the main route in the Middle East. It's the biggest route of all. And that's what they're taking to get to Canaan, what we call Israel today. But they have to pass through Edom, so they ask permission. Say, we'll stay on the highway. 
we won't stop. But Edom answers with a threat. Numbers 20, verse 18. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. Remember, they've just had a big battle. He defeated another Canaanite king. So they know that there's been this big battle in the past. So they say, No, you can't come. If you come, we'll fight. Moses lays aside his pride, requests once again permission to pass through. Numbers 20, verse 19. The people of Israel said to him, to the king of Edom, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But again, Edom replies, But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and a strong force. And because of Edom's response, Israel is forced to take a detour on the way to the promised land. And this detour meant a couple of hundred extra miles for the people of Israel. It's not a matter of taking another road. There is no other road. They have to travel through the desert with loose sandy soil and cliffs of granite. And there's terrible sandstorms, and there's little water, and there's no vegetation. Israel is forced to take a detour on foot with all of the women and children and with all their flocks and herds. And I mention all this to you so you understand that they're traveling through really rough terrain. Perhaps they felt they had a right to complain. Most likely, if we were there, we'd be complaining too. And the Israelites weren't happy about passing through this area. They began to complain. The children of Israel complained about the way that God was taking care of them. Look again at verse 4. It says, And the people became impatient on the way. The New King James translates that, And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. This is a hard way to go. It wasn't what they wanted. It's not the way they would have chosen. It's not their way. Any of you guys ever been driving around town with your wife? And your wife would say, why are you going this way? And what seems obvious to you isn't obvious to her. So you try to explain to her that this is the best way to go. And she doesn't agree with you. But since you think you know better, you drive on anyway. That's what Moses must have felt like. Israel is convinced that their way is the best way. And something they had a difficult time understanding and accepting, something we have a difficult time understanding and accepting, is that God's way is always the best way. Sometimes we disagree with God. We're convinced our way is better. And certainly what the Israelites thought. The Bible says they got very discouraged, they became impatient on the way. Yes, it was a difficult way. And yes, it was a long way. But it was God's way for them. God was leading them with a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, and by a servant Moses. But they're still wandering. And we look at verse 5 and we see that wandering people are complaining people. Verse 5, complaining And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. The New Living Translation says they began to murmur against God. The New Century says, and they grumbled at God. That God's Word Translation says they criticized God. What's their complaint now? We've already seen that they're upset about the directions. Now they despise God's food. Manna. They're tired of manna. And God had been feeding them with manna from heaven. Psalm 78 uh, tells us, Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. And God had been providing daily fresh manna for them that would sustain them through their journey. But it's been a really long time and they're tired of it and they ridicule this provision. Notice what they say about the manna. We loathe this worthless food. Loathe means to be disgusted with it. To them, the food that God was providing, what the Bible says is the bread of angels is disgusting and worthless. And God heard them complaining. And the last time they complained against God, they died in the desert. And this time, when they complain against God, they die in the desert. Sensing a pattern. Look at verse 6, and dying. Verse 6, and dying. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God is so displeased with their complaining. He sent fiery serpents among them to bite them. Snakes and lots of them. And snakes are an apt symbol for their complaining and how complaining spreads through the body like venom. And the snakes slithered into the tents and into the blankets and into the clothes. And they bit the men and they bit the women and they bit the children. And like complaining, the venom spread, and the people screamed, and people died. Lots and lots and lots of them. The venom of their anger against God led them to complain about God, which is blasphemy. It led them to reject Moses, refusing God's authority. It led them to complain about God's provision of manna, ungratefulness. In John 6, Jesus speaks three times about the manna as being a type of himself, that he is the true bread from heaven. And a rejection of this heavenly manna is tantamount to spurning the grace of God and the Savior. Complaining against God is sin, and sin brings death. And when the snakes got through to them, literally, God had their attention. And now they're ready to admit that they'd sinned against God. Look at verse 7, because the key thing happens uh, that happens in verse 7 is praying. Verse 7, praying. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. A lot of folks today think they can't get any help from God. They can't get any answers 
from God because although they can see all the sin in the lives of others, they can't see the sin in their own life. They're quick to confess the sins of others, but they can't see the sins in their own life. I remember a guy once said to a preacher, I don't think I'm a sinner. The preacher asked him if he would be willing for his mother to know everything he's ever done, everything he's ever said, and everything he's ever thought. And after just the briefest of moments, the young man said, no, I don't want her to know all that stuff. Not for all the world. The children of Israel had found fault with God and with God's man, and after God sent judgment on them and the serpents bit them, they no longer had any doubts that they were sinners. They said very plainly, we have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Notice they didn't say, hey, Moses, we made a few mistakes. We misspoke. It's not what we meant. It was taken out of context. Very plainly, they said, we have sinned. And once someone's willing to face the reality of sin in their life, then they're in a position to hear how God can help them. As most of you know, I've written a dissertation on preaching, in particular about preaching in evangelical churches, and specifically on preaching in the newer evangelical churches of Loudoun County, Virginia. It's not about what's going on out there. It's, not, it's about what's going on where we live. And it's not about liberal churches or non-Christian places or unbelieving groups. It's about evangelical, Bible-believing churches. And you want to know what's one of the biggest things that's missing from many of these churches? The Bible. They believe it as fervently as we do. They just don't use it very much. And we have people today in Loudoun County that are floating around from church to church wanting to know what other churches have to offer before they'll attend. And they want to know what kind of activities the church offers. Not a bad question. What, kind of, what style of worship the church has. Not a bad question. What kind of facilities the church offers. Also not a bad question. How many youth events does the church offer. Not a bad question. What kind of children's programs does the church offer. Not a bad question. They want to know everything the church has available for them and the churches are bending over backwards to accommodate them. But the thing they don't ask, or very rarely ask, are, does this church teach and preach the Word of God? Does this church teach and preach the Gospel of Grace? Does this church teach and preach the whole story of the Bible? And the reasons they don't ask for these things is because that's not what they're looking for. And so many churches are not bending over backwards to provide them. A few are, but not many. It's been three years since I've written that dissertation, and it's only gotten worse, not better. Today there is a famine of the Word of God in the land. And I'm not talking just about America, although that's true. I'm talking about Loudoun County, Virginia, Sterling, South Riding, Brambleton, Ashburn, Leesburg, Hamilton, Percival, Round Hill, and Hillsborough. And if you live somewhere else, I'm sure it applies just as much, if not more. The spiritual food that God's Word provides is rejected by many today. People who claim to belong to Christ are unwittingly rejecting Christ because they reject the provision of Christ. They reject the Word of Christ. 
And some of the most ridiculous things you can imagine are being served to the people of God. And they're entertained and they're fed junk food. And spiritually they are dying and they don't know why. And they don't know what to do. And they're paying a tremendous price. And God hasn't sent any snakes yet. You know, I have to give a certain amount of credit to the children of Israel in this story. Because despite all the problems, all the issues, all the needs, all the complaining, all the wandering, all the snakes, all the death, they did two things right. First, they confessed their sin. Specifically, we have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. They're lost people. They knew they were going to get bit by the snakes. They knew they were going to die. And they're out of options. And second, they came to Moses and they begged him to pray for them. They pleaded for prayer. They pleaded for the lost and they were the lost. They're surrounded by the lost and everyone's dying. Moses, pray for us. And Moses did. We don't know what he said. The text doesn't say. And we don't know how he prayed. The text doesn't say. And we don't know how long he prayed for. The text doesn't say. The text simply says, so Moses prayed for the people. Moses went before God and pleaded for the lost. Except in this case, the lost were his people. The lost were his friends. The lost were his family. And he counted himself in the company of the lost. I don't know if Moses uh, was really all that eager to pray. I mean, they'd been complaining about him too. I'd have been tempted to throw up my hand and say, you know, I told you so. Complain about God. Die in the desert. We already learned that lesson once. This is your problem. This is between you and God. I don't have a snake in this fight. I'm going to be over there in the snake-less area. Let me know how it turns out. And apparently Moses is way more gracious than I am because the Bible says, so Moses prayed for the people. And so if Moses' job was praying, then God's job is redeeming. Verses 8 and 9, redeeming. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Notice that the bronze serpent was lifted up for those who had been bitten by the snakes. God sent the snakes because the people had sinned. God put up the bronze snake so the people who sinned, uh, because the people who had sinned needed to be saved. It was sin that put the bronze snake on the pole. And the bronze snake was lifted up for those who had been bitten, and everyone who looked at the serpent on that pole would live. No, there's no time limit set for the cure. Some may have looked to that bronze snake as soon as they felt the sting of the bite. Some may have looked to the bronze snake as they saw their legs and arms begin to swell. Some may have waited until they were about to lose their minds before they looked. The fact is, whenever it was that they looked, they were given life. And some people may have thought it was just foolishness to look at the bronze snake on the pole. Why doesn't God just take the snakes away? Why doesn't God just heal us outright? This whole snake on a pole thing is stupid. And they died. Centuries later, that healing look 
at Moses' bronze snake became the subject of Jesus' illustration of faith to a certain Pharisee. Nicodemus, seeking truth, came to Jesus at night. And in the lengthy dialogue, Jesus brought up the snake. We read this as our responsive reading this morning. Let me just read part of that, John three fourteen through 18 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The most famous passage in the whole Bible is set in the context of Moses putting a snake on a pole. You don't understand John 3.16 if you don't know Numbers 21. And like the snake, Jesus would be lifted up on the cross, bearing the curse for our sin. As the Apostle Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then in Galatians 3, Paul wrote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is, anyone, is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And like those who simply looked at the bronze serpent and lived, anyone who looks to Christ, and as John 3 says, believes in him, may have eternal life. What an amazing cure for the deadly sting of sin. Sin is killing us. But God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin and put him on a pole. And throughout the scriptures, from Genesis through Revelation, God is pleading for us to look to Jesus. And when we look to Christ on the cross, we shall be saved. Placing our faith in the intoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross provides salvation for our souls and forgiveness for our sins. See, this story in Numbers 21 is not so much about sand and snakes as it is about sinners who need a Savior. People who need to be healed of sin. People like us. Now, if this whole story sounds to you like somebody's supernatural explanation uh, for a bunch of tired hikers who don't look where they walk, um, please note this thing. All of the snakes in this story belong to God. All of the snakes in this story belong to God. The live snakes biting the ankles, the bronze snake high up on the pole. All of them gods. I mean, we hear about snakes. We reach for a garden hoe. It's that old snake-hating gene looking for a just war theory. But it doesn't work in this story. All of the snakes are gods. Our text says these were fiery serpents. The key word here being fiery or burning. The Hebrew word is seraph. The word seraph appears four times in the Old Testament. One of them here in Numbers 21. It always refers to serpents associated with judgment. 
and sometimes they fly. Another version of this same word is seraphim, which describes that's multiple seraphs. It describes the angels that Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6, also fiery, also sent by God to frighten, burn, rouse, revive, and ultimately heal the people of God. Angels, very scary angels. Now, this may be biblical, but it won't sell in any Christian bookstore I've ever been in. In the Christian bookstore, seraphim come decked in pink with satin ribbons in their hair, and they always look like Caucasian women. Maybe fiery does work. (laughs) Anyway, they look a lot like us. If you don't believe me, go to seraphimhouse.com. You can find a porcelain collection of them for sale with names like Abigail, Amanda, Amy, Anna, Ariana, Annabella, or Ashley. Those are just the A names. And if they're angels, then I guess that's okay. You might prefer Meredith, the red-headed guardian of celestial music, who plays a large harp on a snowy cloud. Or perhaps you'd like Flora Ella, the guardian angel of nature, who sits surrounded by deer and birds and bunnies, but no snakes. <laughs> now, if you collect those figurines, forgive me. But you have to admit, is seraphimhouse.com offered you a collection of fiery serpents for the china cabinet, you'd click over to Amazon, buy a garden hoe. (laughs) I mean, who wants frightening angels that bite? Who wants wandering in the wilderness, for that matter? Who wants a daily dose of high anxiety? Who wants to follow a leader who truly believes in the promised land, but apparently doesn't know how to get there? These are not things we expect for those who follow God. The way ahead is supposed to be clear and safe, and the difference between good and evil should be obvious, and God's supposed to protect us from biting snakes, and fiery serpents aren't supposed to work for him. But the scriptures that we call sacred tell a different story. In this story, fiery serpents sent by God bring the people to their senses. And burying their dead, they remember how much they love being alive. Furthermore, they realize what nerve they had to speak against God and Moses, who are doing everything they can to keep the people alive. So they repent, they plead for prayer, Moses prays, but God doesn't call the snakes off. Instead, he tells Moses to put one up on a pole so that even though the people still suffer snake bites in the desert, they don't die from it anymore. And Moses makes a replica of the thing they fear most and takes the source of their fear out from under their feet and puts it high up on a pole where they can't miss it. And now they start looking up instead of down, and their lives are saved. And now they see that the seraph of death is actually the seraph of life. See, in this story, the snakes don't lead the people into sin. They lead the people out of sin. By scaring them so badly, they leap into the arms of life. And now several hundred years later, another one, like the bronze serpent, fell to the hoe. And the venom his killers feared turned out to be theirs, not his. And it took setting him high on a pole to see that. And then God lifted him even higher so that venom turned to anti-venom and even those who killed him were saved when they looked on him. 
hung on a pole, shining like the sun. He is God's fiery reminder that enemies and angels sometimes look a lot alike. It's very easy in a world like ours to think that we know the difference between the good serpents and the bad snakes and that we can be trusted with garden hose. That we know the right way to go and the best food to eat. And we pray like God should really pay attention to what we have to say. If you've never read any of Annie Dillard's books, you should. They're wonderful. And she has a fine passage in her book called Teaching a Stone to Talk about how casually we invoke the power of God in our prayers. She writes, It's madness to wear a lady's straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares, and they should lash us to our seats, for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. She goes on to talk and tell a story about a Hasidic uh, Jewish rabbi who refuses to promise his friend that he'll visit him the next day. He says, how can you ask me to make such a promise? This evening I must pray and recite the words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is, the Lord is one. And when I say these words, my soul goes out to the rim of life. Perhaps I shall not die this time either, but how can I promise to do something after that prayer? How long has it been since you worried about dying at prayer? Not because the cholesterol finally got to you, but because God heard you and showed up. You know, I actually think I'm a lot smarter than many of my friends who are always telling God they're ready for anything he wants them to do. My prayers are different. I'm usually telling God to answer them. <laughs> you know, it's fine you want to move me down the list. I'm plenty busy, more than enough actually. And I'm not sure I'm up to a direct encounter. I mean, I've read my Bible. I know what happens to people who meet God. And it seems to me we're a lot like the Israelites who think they know what they're talking about. We say God's name out loud without even bowing. We question his wisdom, dispute his plans, challenge his authority. We talk about what God thinks and what God wants as if we actually knew what that was. And so many times we're just flat lost, wandering in the desert, and snakes are coming. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we come to this story, and we often don't understand it. We think it would be different if it was us. We would be smarter or better. We would understand. But we are just like those people. We are sinners who need a Savior. And you have given us a Savior. And you have pleaded with us to look to Him. And Lord, so I pray this morning, regardless of where we're at, whether we're believer or unbeliever, new Christian or been Christian for years, today, help us to look to Jesus. Help us to set aside all the stuff, all the baggage, all the wandering, the sand, the snakes, and let us lift our eyes and look to Jesus. That we might not only be healed,
that we might be saved. Do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.